Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Take uh, your Bible and turn to uh, Ecclesiastes this morning, uh, chapter 6. We're going to look at the next uh, section of our study in this, uh, this book of Solomon. He's the Kohel. Some of you have probably read the introduction. If you have a good study Bible, I have an introduction, and it'll translate even the word preacher. It's Kohel. It's the speaker of the assembly. That's Solomon. Kohel is the, uh, some call it the preacher. Uh, that's what it is. I think this is one sermon, and we're taking our time to walk through it and see it uh, in its development and its application for our life, but uh, that's what it is. I've entitled uh, this morning's message, Prosperity and Adversity. Prosperity and Adversity. Well, usually it's a joy to go on a journey. I don't know. Some folks don't like to stay. Some have wanderlust, and they're always moving about. But uh, to be in a place and then uh, to plan and to go on a journey usually is a, is a joy. And uh, it could be a family vacation. And some of my most fondest memories are when we went away as a, as a family. It was very important. My father work hard, play hard. And uh, we would go for a couple of weeks a family of seven children, imagine that, uh, crowded into that, the old-time station wagons. Remember those? I see some of those occasionally on the road. And we were crammed into it. Dad made a carrier for the top. We helped screw it all together and waterproof it. And there we went. What a sight. All over New England, Canada, everywhere. Yeah, unbelievable. And some of my fondest memories uh, are the, those incredible times. And some of you will agree with that, the joy of uh, family vacations, getaways, or study trips. Some of the trips that the Lord's allowed us go to Europe and to the Holy Lands and Egypt, to crawl through the pyramids, to study the Egyptians, to study there in the land of Israel. Wonderful times. I'm reminded often a trip takes a lot of planning. A lot of energy. It takes a lot of time to succeed at arriving at your destination. But uh, my question here is, what if you never arrived? I'm not talking about Groundhog Day, where it's always the same and you never quite get there. But uh, you kept going and going. Like the, is it the Ever-Ready ever Battery? In the rabbit, he keeps going and going and going, so-called. You kept going and going and going, and you never got to your destination. Wouldn't that be terrible? I'm reminded that this is the plight of men and women everywhere, especially in our privileged and blessed country that we live in, in our day. It's the plight of men and women who think that prosperity, things, stuff, as we saw last week, is uh, apart from God is what life is all about. Just the accumulation of more and more and more stuff. Uh, forgetting anything at all about God, our Creator. As if that's what life is really about. The bumper sticker. 
He who finishes with the most toys wins. Kind of encapsulates that, that saying, that philosophy that's everywhere. I'm saying to you, it's, if that is what you're in pursuit of, like so many are, it's like uh, trying to go somewhere and you'll never arrive. It will never deeply satisfy the joy. For God has not wired you, made you, to be satisfied deeply in your soul from stuff. Impossible. Impossible. It's unworthy. It's elusive on your sheet. It will never satisfy your heart. Never. This is not the path to a life that is full, enjoyed in the pleasure that God gives. It's impossible. And we all know that. When we're young, if I could just get this, and you get it, and you're bored with it after a short order, and it's something else, and something else, and something else, and it never satisfies, does it? Never, ever. Solomon talks often repeatedly about that and weaving through this message. And we'll see it today in prosperity and in adversity. The old saying, never judge a book by its cover, is true. And so we should never get confused about the true state of one's affairs by looking at merely the outward situation. I'm reminded that prosperity may not always be what it seems. Prosperity may be a schoolhouse that we flunk out of in learning the real messages of life because it tends to be easy. The blue skies that we all think, all oh, that's all we ever want. They are not as, a good, as good of a teacher or schoolmaster as in the days of adversity. So Solomon tells us that uh, it is God who has ordained the incapacity of worldly things to, in, to yield enjoyment. In fact, often worldly prosperity only increases the emptiness of a man or woman or of someone who has quite a bit apart from God and yet deals daily with the deepest dissatisfaction that uh, is found in life. I've had the... Uh, the privilege and the responsibility in, in days gone by and even in other states uh, like the state of Indiana where the Faithy and I had a joy of pastoring for nine and a half years and, and to deal with some folks that were extremely wealthy by worldly ways. I mean, uh, to give you an example, um, I uh, the last three years there got involved in the public high school and it seemed to be a prudent thing. I was the high school varsity wrestling coach. And I did that uh, along with pastoring there in a the little town. And it opened up all sorts of opportunities uh, for me uh, with uh, the townspeople. That uh, just being a part of uh, the, ch- the, the teen's life and in the public school and all the rest uh, opened up. And God used that and saw some saved. I was able to marry some of them. And and be a greater influence. I had a key to the high school and all the rest. And in that town, uh, one night, I remember I got a call uh, asking me to stop by the house. Uh, One of these uh, uh, quite wealthy individuals wanted to know if I'd pick up a check for 
a building program we were in. And I said, well, certainly. I'm on my way to the high school, getting the bus, and we're going to go. And this was back in 1985 or 6. And I went by and uh, handed me an envelope with a check. And as I was turning around, they said, oh, it's $100,000. And I, you know, I was dressed like a coach going, and I had it in my back pocket. And uh, that night later, every time I got up to yell that the guy was holding on to my back pocket, <laughs> it was, and yet I'll tell you that things were not right in that home. And it was a home that at least half of it was deeply, deeply dissatisfied. There was a yearning for the things of the Lord on one party, but not the other. And uh, tears and tears and tears, brokenness. And I saw not only there, but I've seen that through the, the accumulation of things is nothing. I was there at another time, and the one was so upset at the other, threw a check for 45000 on the floor and was jumping on it. And I realized again that life is junior high. I hadn't seen that since junior high. <laughs> that the brokenness, and the, it, that is not it. It doesn't matter if you have a 150-foot RV, and some folks have had that. And, 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 and if, if it's not the Lord and loving His Savior and revering Him and obeying Him, then all the rest of the stuff doesn't even matter. It does not matter. I don't care how big your pile is. It will never yield at the end of the day the satisfaction and longing in your heart that God has designed for you to crave. Well, man by himself does not know what is good for him. We're going to see that. God actually tells us this in his word. We think we need the blue skies of life, the sunshine. Don't we love those days, don't we? We do. That's all I ever want. I mean, I'm not here dialing up trouble. Lord, send some more, you know. I need to do remedial work here. Who does that? They need to go see Dr. David if they do that kind of thing. We realize that that's not normal. But when you think about life as it really is, it's not the days of prosperity. It's the days of adversity, trouble, heartache, and sorrow that God has a way of opening our hearts and deepening our souls and giving us the joy that is found only in Jesus. A.W. Tozer once wrote, God cannot use a man or woman until he has hurt them very deeply. Now that's quite a statement. God must hurt us and allow trouble to come in this troublesome world or we would be pygmies in the school of God. We'd be in first grade and flunking every year. And Why don't they ever grow up? They're all enamored with these toys. Put them away and grow up in the things of God. C.S. Lewis said something almost like that. And so in our text today, two contrasting opposites of life, teaching us that life is not what it may seem. For adversity might be a far better, might be far better for us than prosperity. It might be better, and I believe it really is. Well, it's a simple sermon. The uh, the two contrasting opposites are: first, prosperity may not always be good for us, and then we, as we move into chapter seven, the second opposite is adversity is not always bad. It isn't. It's not always bad. 
God has a way of when we feel the heat, we see the light. A lot of times, uh, folks will sit in church and hear tremendous uh, truths from God's Word. Not only our church, I trust, but all the churches that are evangelical and love the Lord and love the Word and love the Savior and the preaching of the Word, and we hear it, and we go like, oh, that's great, and we walk on. It doesn't seem to make much difference sometimes. But when we feel the heat, it's all of a sudden it clears our ears like Tommy Nelson's son, and we hear like we never could hear before. That's what Job said at the end of Job. After all he went through, he felt the heat, he saw the light, he said, listen, before I only ever heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. It was adversity that brought that. And when I think back of my own life, and there have been times of deep sorrow and sadness and tears, and some of it came extremely unexpectedly. You know, we want to scope out our lives. The Lord... And this is what, we don't even know what's going to happen moment to moment. Reference George even this week. We don't know. We do not know. We think we know what's best. We don't know what's best. God knows what's best. And as I look back at my life, it's been those times when of deep loss, sadness, sometimes bad sickness, sometimes sudden death. Those are the times, and through those tears, God has deepened my soul with contentment for himself. Listen, when all you have is Jesus, that's all you need. And, you, and I'm convinced we really don't know that until he's really all we have. It's true in my life, and I know it's true in yours. This idea of prosperity, we think, well, that's best. You can't judge a book by its cover, and we think, well, that's it. Or we'll look at someone where they seem to have a lot of stuff, we go, boy, that's, that's really, man, it must be going great for them. Don't be deluded. Things are not as they seem. Sometimes God is the great gift giver, and he gives us everything we have. But sometimes it's in times of sorrow that where God is really working and developing and breaking a man or woman so he can really use them. Well, that's what Solomon is talking about here in chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. He's talking about prosperity may not always be good for us. Let's look at the text. He goes on in verse 1, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth and possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires. But God does not enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. Man may have a hundred children, live many, many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and darkness its name is shrouded, though it never saw the sun or knew anything. It has more rest then does that man, even if he should live 2,000 years and fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place? That's the grave. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage is a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named. That's God's foreordination. 
And what man is has been known by God. No one can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? Incidentally, that's not talking about the length of a sermon. But man complaining with many words to God, what are you doing? It does no good to complain. That's what he's saying there. For who knows what is good for a man in his life? You don't, and I don't, he's saying, during the few and meaningless days as he passes through like a shadow who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he's gone. Well, that's what he's saying. Here's prosperity. Roman number one may not always be good for us. You can have a great amount of possessions, and we are, I remind you, we are wealthy by world standards, by historical stand. We are wealthy. We live like kings. Imagine climate control. We're such babies. I mean, we have to have it in our house, and our cars. Got, we have heat. We have to have air conditioning, and we can't live without it, we say. We really could. But, and how many of you had homes? You grew up, you didn't have air conditioning. Raise your hand. Let me see that. How many of you uh, have it now? Raise your hand. How many don't have it? There you go. There, there you go, Jerry. Man, oh, man. Well, he's a good boy. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. But that's how it is. Not too many years ago, we didn't have air conditioning, right? And uh, look at that. Climate control, the food we eat, the ability to travel, transportation, the clothing, the garments. It's like we, got, we want 34 varieties. You go to an ice cream stand and they've got two. You go like, what's the deal? What do you mean vanilla and chocolate? You don't have Rocky Road or Hubby, what's that, Hubby? Chubby Hubby? <laughs> Jimmy must like that. <laughs> we want all the, we live like kings. And the, what God has given to us, it's amazing. And yet I'm reminded, A, you can have a great amount of possession and yet lack the very ability to enjoy these gifts is from God. Such as the situation, he said, is a heavy burden. It is a heavy burden that weighs on men. Verse 1, men and women. Many today suffer from this as they attempt to enjoy possessions but find that they have nothing but deep emptiness after short order deep inside their hearts. That's where we live, and you know that as well as I do. This book of Ecclesiastes pounds home over and over again that enjoyment never comes from the increasing of goods in our lives. They're God's gifts, but if God isn't the center of your life and doesn't give you also the gift of enjoyment, they lead, I think, to greater misery. Because we'll talk about that in a moment. How irritating uh, to get what you have always wanted and longed for, only to discover that in short order it loses all its luster and you get rid of it. And it's down to the, to the, to the dump, as we said last week. Well, if God withholds the gift of this enjoyment, and which he, I should say, delights in giving to his children that love him, I mean, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the meek shall inherit the earth. It doesn't mean you have to own it all. Please get over that, right? The sunshine and the beach and the mountains and all that. You know, you don't have to own it to enjoy it. In fact, it's better if you don't. You don't have to pay the taxes and all the 
upkeep and the principle and the interest and all that stuff. Just, en- just enjoy it. Love me and serve me and, 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 and know that it's not the stuff, it's me. It's the gift giver, not the gifts. And if we'll do that, it's God, God's gift and what a joy it is. Well, B, you can have a very long life, he says. You can live a 1,000 or even 2,000 years. And most people would say that's a blessed thing, long life. The short life, we say, is sad to be taken in the prime or the earliness of life. But to live a long life, we'd say that's a blessing of God. But if you live a very long time and then you have a lot of children, doesn't he use and using uh, hyperbolic language, he talks about a hundred children. That's a lot of children. And children are a gift of the Lord. And even if you have that gift as well, but if God doesn't give you the ability to enjoy life as a gift that's found only through the Savior, then what is that? Your life is no better off than a stillborn baby. That's a sad event. I can remember a funeral I had, and and uh, the baby was uh, diagnosed to with, uh, with a, a terrible uh, uh, problem and was born and died. And I'll never forget that, the little white casket, about yay big. How sad that was. A little baby never saw the daylight of day, never enjoyed an ice cream cone, never laughed, never went to school, never in the sadness of that. And yet Solomon is saying the person, the man or woman, has all this stuff, as we all do, and yet doesn't know God and know the Savior and, and have the gift of enjoyment, Solomon's saying, and even live a long time and have all these children, what kind of prosperity is that? A stillborn baby is better off. Why? Because the baby never had to go through the grievousness of living life without any joy, the enjoyment and pleasure and satisfaction that God gives. Whereas that man or woman, thinking stuff is it, found out it isn't it, and went through the grievousness of that. The, un, the baby stillborn didn't have that, and Solomon in his wisdom says, even that child is better. Better off, as terrible as that experience is. At the end of it, both the wealthy man and the stillborn end up in the same place, that is, the grave. And we were reminded that life is a, is a march to the parade. Remember the memorial Day parade I made reference to some time ago as a kid. The, the band and all the, and the Boy Scouts and the baseball boy, they all marched down Payne Avenue, the main street in my city I grew up. And they always ended it at the cemetery. And there they do the 21-gun salute and everything else. And it dawned on me, that's a picture of life. And we're all moving down the street here, and we're going, and we're going to end up in the cemetery. And he's saying that this one who's wealthy, who doesn't have the enjoyment of God, and the stillborn baby, right down into the cemetery, and that's it. They end in the very same place. Well, see, try as hard as you may, you and I are incapable of finding joy on our own effort. You know, there's a German ethnic in our family, so it's, you just double your effort. If it's tough, triple it. Stay focused. Go for it with the, the intensity uh, of, uh, uh, of a gazelle. There you go. Speaking of our, our instructor in fin- uh, biblical financial concept, the, just go for it. And the uh, psalmist says it, it doesn't matter what kind of intensity in 7 through 9 that you give. Uh, you'll never find it. 
Verse 7, all man's efforts are for his mouth in a symbolic way, yet his appetite is never satisfied. Not only food, but all the other greater things of life. Never satisfied. Never. The wise man, the fool, the poor, certainly a wise man is better off than a fool. He avoids the potholes in life that a fool hits, but all three of them end up at the cemetery. And so... He points clearly that out to us. Your appetite, number one, will never satisfy, even though you have much. Number two, your toil, your work, your activity is designed to satisfy your appetite for pleasure and for contentment. But hard work and desperate drive to satisfy along these lines will never work. It will never produce lasting pleasure in your life. And there's no difference between the wise, the poor, and the fool, for all three die. Therefore, he calls us to be content with what our eyes see. Verse 9, better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. Contentment, contentment. He calls us to be contented. Contentment with godliness, Paul said, is great gain. It's a spiritual issue, this contentment business. We see someone else, we imagine their life, it's a facade, and we want to be that. And we're filled with discontentment. How unpleasing is that to the Lord? In uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 13, we'll see on the screen, in verses uh, 5 and 6, one of these great verses, particularly verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can men do to me? He's saying there, we are to be content. Why? Because if you have the Savior, you have everything. You have everything in him. And so as the king's kids, we ought not walk around with the case of the gimmies and the discontent We have everything in him, is what he is saying, contentment. And we ought to be content with what the eye sees. And the the reason for all this is given. You see in verses 10 to 12, man is up against God's unchangeable decree. Verse 10, what uh, exists has already been named. It's not like the naming of your dog or your children. That's what he's talking about. He's saying God has named or established everything that is everything. He has established it all. It's already been ordained. And what man is has been known. That is, God alone knows. And no one can contend with one who is stronger than he, even though the more the words. And so when life happens and we may want to complain to God, why are you doing this? If you love me, why would you let this happen? And this complaining and contending with God God knows who we are. He made us. He, uh, he has established all things, and, and so we ought to just rest and wait upon him to carry us through those hard times. That's what he's telling us in this, uh, through the pen of Solomon. His beautiful plan, though we cannot see it from Ecclesiastes 3.11, it is beautiful. God is weaving it all together. Man cannot contend with God. God alone knows what is really good for us. We think this is good for us, but it's not. I remember a lot of times uh, when my children were young, they would would ask for certain things for uh, for, uh, Faith and I to buy them. 
as uh, when they were young children, you know. And uh, that dad can have this. I remember for a long time, Jonathan wanted a slingshot. Well, that was the last thing I was going to buy Jonathan. And he wanted one with the BBs, too. And I just thought, like, that is going to be trouble. You want what? No, you're not getting that. Get away, you know. <laughs> yeah, Dad, if I just have one of these things, you know, like, <laughs> no way. Well, in, in, a, in a whole other plane, God knows what we need. He knows what's good for us. And he keeps certain things away from us and gives us what we need in the mixture of life. You know, it's like the weather. I was thinking about this this week. We had, we've come out of three days of kind of gloomy weather, kind of rain, sort of, and cloudy and gray. And, and now we see the beautiful sun out there, and, and hopefully we're, we're going to go through some days of sun. And God mixes all that up. The weathermen are not in charge of the weather. They miss it a lot. Have you noticed that? They what? They can, yeah, percentage, okay, yeah, that's right. They do. They put it on a percentage now, so it's a, but they're not. And God can blow this way, and all of a sudden, like, whoa, we didn't know that was going to happen, the high pressure, the low pressure, and all that. God does the weather. He mixes it all up, and not all days are sunny, even in Florida, right, Mark? Some days it rains, it rains down there. It does. And even at Camelot, it rains at night. Right? Only ever at night. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but only at, at night. Right? God mixes all that together. Well, that is life. But God has something in mind. He's growing you and he's growing me up. And he mixes it all together. The analogy of a, of a, of a keyboard. We said that the other week. If all the music were simply played on the white keys, it's bland sounding. You can take familiar hymns if you're good at music and transitioning. You can play it on the white keys. But it's, you need the sharps and the flats. You need the black keys to intermix with the white keys, and that makes beautiful music. And the same thing is true in your life and in mine. And so don't be so thin in your thinking to think prosperity is always the evidence of God's blessing. It may not be at all. It may, it, it's delusional almost. But we think about that deep, and we think that must be. But inside the heart and homes of such folks may be deep dissatisfaction, brokenness, displeasure, and the lack of fulfillment in life. Don't be, don't be deluded in your thinking about that. So given our narrow view of life, don't complain to God. Rather, accept the reality that we are not wise enough to know what is really good for us. And we need to trust God to choose the elements that you and I need. Well, that's a prosperity. may not always be good for us. And then he looks at the second op, con- contrasting opposite of life. And that is that adversity is not always bad. Just when everything seems to be going smoothly... The world can change on a dime, on a phone call. I've had that happen, as many of you have had. It changes. And I'm reminded that hard times shape us. They shape us. Did you hear me? They shape us. One man writes that God's adversity is like a chisel and hammer in your life and mine. And God chisels away the parts that would uh, not uh, be lost during the sunshine days of life. God chisels, and so adversity, trouble, heartbreak, sorrow, 
shape us and make us into something we are not, something we would never be apart from God's hand in our life. And these uh, Proverbs, and he's going to list a number of them in the early verses here of chapter 7. Solomon lists the good things that can happen during our days of trouble and affliction. And he's going to tell us that these are far more abiding than the rich man's mirth, his, his so-called laughter apart from God that never satisfies. These things last a whole lot longer. And in chapter 7, verse 1, look at a number of these verses. A good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a wise, wise man's rebuke than to listen to the, to the top ten, the songs of fools. Like the crackling thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. It's meaningless. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. And don't say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Well, let's stop at this point. A series of Proverbs is going to show us that adversity is not always bad, and in fact, they shape us and grow us up and allow us to pass first grade in the things of God and move on to fifth grade even. And, and some of us are in middle school, and some of us doing remedial work over in a summer school. What a horrifying expression that was. You don't want to go to summer school. And some of us may finally graduate, although probably when we finally go to heaven and utterly translated into glory. Well, A, look at a good name. What are some things that are better than someone who has a lot of stuff but no pleasure, no gift of enjoyment? A good name, he's saying. A good name. Uh, he, he has a play in words here. In Hebrew, the word name is Shem. Shem, some of you know that. And the play in words is perfume is Shemin. So uh, you don't see it in the English, but a Shem is better than a Shemin. Uh, some of you smell great today. You have cologne on and perfume, and it effervesces away from your body, and you walk by, and we can smell it. My nose doesn't work too good like it used to, but uh, somewhat very pleasing. And it, uh, it, it, it moves away from you uh, and, and is able to be smelled. Uh, and so that's what he's saying. A good name is even better than that. It lasts longer. Perfume may last for, what, a day? Probably not even that long but a good name, whether you're wealthy or poor or not. And a poor man can have a good name, a name of character and integrity. It's better than even the smell of perfume that lasts a short time. That's even better. The influence goes far beyond its owner, like perfume. It's better. A poor man can have that. Well, B, he says, the lesson of deep sorrow is that death and a funeral can lead to the right view of life. Such things often provide a mellowing to the heart, and it's needed. Our prideful hearts need that. The crucial issues of life are faced. Listen, I can go into a tavern and uh, open uh, my little testament and preach a sermon, 
And uh, amid the laughter and everything else, nobody would even pay attention. Who's that crackpot over there? It wouldn't happen. Not going to happen. But I'll tell you this. I preached to a thousand people at a funeral where there was a death of a 16-year-old boy who was thrown from his car in the little Jetta. And there was not a, a dry eye in the place, and all eyes were up on front. You see what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, uh, death has a way of doing that. It's a great wake-up to us, to, to the ultimate realities of life that is so short. It's here and it's gone. And it has a way of, of reaching deep inside for all those sitting at a funeral realize, someday I'm going to be in that box or whatever. And it probably won't be long, and my life is uncertain, and I wonder what he might have to say that might help me along. And it opens our hearts and allows us through our tears to hear the things of God that we would not have heard in the sunny blue days, blue sky days of life. That's just the way we're made. It's our sinfulness that clouds up our hearts and our ears. And such is the value of death. That's what he is saying here. It's better go to the house of mourning, the house of a funeral, the house of death, than to the house of a Super Bowl party. Don't we love those? We love to have the pizza and the chips and everything else and, 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 and to see the bills in the Super Bowl again. It hasn't been there since the 90s. We go, oh, isn't that great? As great as that was, although they didn't win, right? <laughs> There's something better. God says, well, that, uh, what's that? What's that? That's nothing. You go to the heart where there's home where there's sickness and chronic illness and leading to death and then even death, that's where you go to a schoolroom where you will learn the realities of life. And you need it and I need it. Not like the little boy who was dismayed after his first day of kindergarten and didn't want to go back and said to his dad, they told us we had to go back again tomorrow. We need to go to that schoolhouse, and we need to thank God for those times and trust Him, even amid our tears, that, that God knows what's good for us, and He's weaving it together, this tapestry called life. We think we know, but we don't. We don't know what's going to happen in the next minute. And so God invites us to enter into uh, those times of sorrow and sadness and brokenness. It's time to grow up. It's time to put away some toys and the distractions of life deal with things that are ultimately reality. It mellows our hearts, doesn't it? It does. It mellows our hearts, those times of sadness, these issues of life. One man writes, we are to receive everything with a thankful heart, realizing that we do not have it coming to us. All of it is a gift of God, even if it's painful for the moment. A wise Father has chosen it for us, and it will yield to us great and rich benefits. You can be as grateful for the pain as for the pleasure. We ought to be. Yeah, to be in the presence of sickness and death has a tendency to bring us quickly to the really crucial issues of life. The rest of it is just a distraction, and it never satisfies Death, though it uh, will bring you sorrow, grief, and mourning, you'll, in the midst of it, set aside the shallow aspects of life 
you'll start to deal with the real facts of it, the reality of our lives. On the other hand, man writes, feasting can be deceitful, and it leads to unreal living. Boy, isn't that true. It is so true. Well, uh, see, sorrow can lead to gladness. In verses 3 to 6, adversity can teach us what success never could. Here he contrasts the fool with his songs and laughter with the wise who have mourned. You think about that. I, I mean, we love some of the popular songs. And, uh, you know, someone was mentioned John Denver this morning and this and that. And some of those have great memories, and we love those. But when it's all said and done, what are, what, what are those? I'm not saying they're songs of fools. Some of it is. But they're nothing on the scale compared to what we learn through the brokenness of bereavement, and sorrow, and loss. It's nothing. It's nothing. The laughter, the mirth, none of that. I'm saying that adversity is not always bad, as we may think of it. Not always. Not always. John Ehrlichman, uh, who was uh, Richard Nixon's, uh, one of his counsel back when, wrote a book uh, entitled Witness to Power. And Ehrlichman, who served under Nixon, was uh, for a while one of the most powerful men in the United States. He fell from power when he became involved in the Watergate scandal and was sent to jail. Let me read just a couple excerpts uh, of his account before and after the days of Watergate taken from the last chapter of his book. And Ehrlichman, Ehrlichman writes, When I went to jail nearly two years after the cover-up trial, I had a big self-esteem problem. I was a felon, shorn and scorned, clumping around in a rugged old army uniform doing pick and shovel work out in the desert. And I wondered if anyone thought I was worth anything. For years I had been able to sweep most of my shortcomings and failures under the rug and not face them. But during the two long criminal trials I spent my days listening to prosecutors tell juries what a bad guy I was. Then at night, I'd go back to the hotel room and sit alone thinking about what was happening to me. During that time, it began to take stock. Then he goes on to talk about and describe how his marriage failed. And he went off by himself seeking solitude on the cold and windy shores of, uh, of Oregon. And he stayed alone in a cabin, and I quote now, and I stayed about two weeks. Every day I read the Bible and walked on the beach and sat in front of the fireplace thinking and sketching without outline or agenda. I had no idea where all this was leading or what answers I'd find. Most of the time I didn't know what the questions even were. I just watched and listened. I was wiped out. I had nothing left that had been of value to me. My honor, my credibility, my virtue, it was all gone. It was gone. I didn't even have the allegiance of my family nor my wife. I had managed to lose all of that too. He then moved to New Mexico and he started life over in Santa Fe. And these are, and I'll close with this, with his words, I mean, uh, as he closes that book. And he writes, since 1975, I began to learn to see myself. I care what I perceive about my integrity, my capacity to, to love and to love deeply and to be loved and my essential worth. I don't miss Richard Nixon very much, and I'm sure Richard Nixon probably doesn't miss me much either. I can understand that. I've made no effort to be in touch. Well, he's dead now. 
we had a professional relationship that went as far as sour as a relationship can. And no one likes to be reminded of bad times. Those interludes, the Nixon episodes in my life, have ended. And in a paradoxical way, I'm grateful for them. I'm, hear them? I'm thankful for them. Somehow, I had to see all of that and grow to understand it in order to arrive at the place I find myself now. Wow, that's amazing. That's the value of hard times. When we feel the heat, we see the light, we see what's really important, and it's God and fearing Him and obeying Him and serving our Savior. Wow, that's what it is. Indeed, quickly, in a number of afflictions, the point is made, wait for God's timing. Don't be impatient. Trust in Him. And E, in the midst of of life today. Don't imagine that the old days were better. We do that, don't we? The good old days. You know what? Ten years from now, you're going to think that about today. You're going to say, oh, those good old days. 2008. Oh, it, was, it wasn't. Get a life. Don't say that. It's not true. The good old days are not as good. Time has a way of dimming our memory, doesn't it? Be careful about that. And in and F. The truth of the matter is, is that affliction, verses 13 and 14, is by the appointment of God. I want to read these to you. Look at 13 and 14. Never forget these verses. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? He means by that, figuratively, affliction and trouble. When times are good, here it is, be happy, celebrate, have a party. God is pleased with that. Be happy. But... When times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness. He dies and he dies early. And a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Wow. God tells us, when times are good, be happy. He further, he tells us, when times are bad, remember, God has made the one as well as the other. There are many lessons in the school of adversity God teaches us. He weaves it all together for his glory. The hard times create in us holiness. They create in us character. They create in us integrity and more and even joy through our tears. And God weaves that all together by his appointment. Some of you have some appointments this week. You go to the doctor, you go here, you get your haircut, and you, this or that. I don't know what all your appointments are. What Solomon is telling us that God has an appointment too in our life, in this thing that he's already ordained, and he's weaving it all together for his glory. This great story that you and I can't know, but only get little glimpses of. He has, he has ordained it all. And he, he weaves it together, and it includes adversity. I'm saying to you that prosperity may not always be good for us. And second, that adversity is not always bad. The contrasts of life are deliberately planned by God so that we would ultimately develop a simple trust and dependence on God. Both prosperity and adversity come from him. Hard times can become the very best years of your life. 
trials can make you sweet and sensitive. You know they can do that. They can do that. I heard Art Linklater uh, talking uh, on an interview. And Art Linklater, we often think of him with uh, his children's TV programs. Children say the darnest things or something like that, right? And uh, quite, a, quite, a, quite a delightful man. Knows the Lord. This was recently an interview. And he talked about the deep sorrow he had when he got the phone call that his daughter uh, overdosed on drugs and killed herself. And back, way back in the 60s. And, and, and he, he used that deep sorrow to sweeten his heart and to give him a life ministry of making parents aware of the problem of, of, of drug use and all of that. And there was a sweetness and a joy that came and a, a meaning and purpose in his life that never would have come had he not gone through the, the sorrow of that loss, that tragic loss of his, of his, of his daughter. David uh, uh, Dale Stone writes a poem. I want to read this to you. It's called The Shaping of a Dis- Disciple. It helps us to understand how God lovingly uses the pain in life to mold us into what he wants. He knows what we ought to be. Listen, listen to this. It's a short little poem. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play for him a noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, then watch God's methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him, making shapes and forms which only God himself can understand. Even while his man is crying, lifting a beseeching hand, yet God bends but never breaks. When man's good he undertakes, when he uses whom he chooses, with every purpose fuses, man to act and act to men, as it was when he began. When God tries his splendor out, man will know what he is bound. God is up to that. It's his doing in your life and mine through the days of prosperity and the days of adversity. Quickly, let's close with our lessons. Number one, the key to life is to know God and to fear him. And to do, the, do so, you must be saved. Only through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. You must be saved. Have you come to a point in your life where you've received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin? He is the Beloved One, the Blessed One, the Savior, the Creator. You must be saved from the penalty of your sin. There's a heaven to gain, and it will be forever and ever. There's a hell to avoid. Don't let the day pass. Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. You can be saved today. Number two. Remember, God alone gives the gift of being able to enjoy life. It is the gift giver, not the gifts. God gives us many gifts. The breath of life, and we're going to see that DVD on Wednesday night. You'll be amazed at what God has done in his creation. God gives us the gift of life and breath. He preserves our life. He blesses us with plenty. 
in that he saves us, the greatest gift. And he gives us the gift even of the enjoyment of what he gives, and God is pleased with that. Don't think that God's not pleased with that. And when he gives us blessings, that we enjoy him and thank him for all of it and realize they're really all his anyways. Remember that. It only comes from God. It's not from you. It's not from me. Number three, adversity can be a much benefit to us. It's fruit, wisdom, integrity, and Christ-likeness. Never forget that. Think rightly when you're in the midst of it. Some of you are. You're in the midst of pain and suffering and darkness and valleys. Think about that. God's up to something. And just be like a tender-hearted child before him. Lord, I don't know what you're up to, but I just submit and trust and wait. That would keep me from the speech of fools where I just complain and complain and complain to you. You're the strong one. You've ordained it all. Bring about your purpose. It's enough for me to serve you. And if you're in prosperity and the days are easy and good, you go, wow, life is good. Get ready. There'll be some minor key things happen. It's called life. Some, some curveballs, some surprises, loss of a job, illness, other things. It happens. And God is weaving that together as well. So number four, God's working wisdom, integrity, and Christ-like. Number four, we do not know what is best for us. We think we do, don't we? We think we do. We don't. Embrace the things that you cannot change. It's God's plan for your life. Embrace them. Lord, it's not what I would do. It breaks my heart. I didn't see it coming. Lord, how long? It's the chronic things that go on Week after week, month, that those are even harder. You wonder, will it ever end? Embrace those things. There's a fraternity of suffering Paul talks about. And we ought to embrace that. And that's what he's talking about here. This is your plan, my life. Let me glorify you. And number five and last. Why would God withhold enjoyments? You might ask, why would God ever do that? Why? Why? He gives us stuff, you mean, and, it, and yet there's no way to get enjoyment in and of itself? Yes, I'm saying that. But why would God withhold it? So that we would seek Him, Him only, and please Him by faith and obedience. We wouldn't be much enamored with the gifts, but we would be in love with the gift giver only and always. That's why. And that's it. Well, prosperity and adversity. God will allow you and me as we love him and serve him and obey him to reach a destination of joy in life. God will give that as a sweet gift. And it's sad to see so many around us think it's found in other places and they never arrive. That's Solomon's message for us. So the heart of this, the Kohel as he preaches to the assembly, this book of Ecclesiastes, and may we take these things to the heart and embrace them and love our Savior. Shall we stand and be dismissed?